This episode is brought to you by the Women's Network. And I remember walking into this executive's office and sort of expected to be handed a severance package or an exit package or told that my time was up. And this man, this actually very short man, um, his grand gesture was to take all of these strategy binders, threw all the binders on the floor from all of our strategy work, and they all burst open and papers went everywhere. And he proceeded to tell me about that all of this work was useless work. Um, and so, you know, sort of sat there and tolerated this, like, this temper tantrum of this new CEO. Hey, everyone, it's Jamie, your host. And this week, I'm so excited for you to hear from our next guest, Betsy Morgan. Betsy is a media veteran, having served in various capacities at CBS News and eventually assuming the role of CEO at the Huffington Post and later at The Blaze. In addition to teaching at Columbia University, Betsy co-founded Magnet Companies in 2018, which is a private equity-backed holding company that acquires and builds direct-to-consumer companies. Betsy is a mom, a professor, a go-getter, and an entrepreneur, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Betsy, it is such a pleasure to speak with you. Hi, Jamie. Hello. So you have had a tremendous career, and I'm so excited to unpack it with you. I love to get to know our guests so I better understanding their backgrounds. So where did you grow up, and who were some of the early influences in your life prior to going off to college? Um, so, Jamie, I grew up in northern Connecticut. It actually, at the last three months or the first three months of the pandemic, I spent with my dad and my family, my husband and my daughter, in the house I grew up in, So, which, was, which for a pandemic is both creepy and comforting, <laughs> right? It's a super familiar house, but kind of creepy to be back in your childhood home. So I, it's funny, I have a lot, of, uh, a lot of fond memories of spending high school in Connecticut and, and growing up in this wonderful house. I went to college in Maine. So I was a New England girl through and through. Um, and my first job coming out of college, uh, it was very important for me to, at that time, to really use my, uh, what I had studied in college. So I was a poli-sci and econ major. And my first job out of college was to work at the Federal Reserve Bank in Boston. So I felt like it was my economics degree put to work. And indeed it was. And at the time, I thought that I might go on and get a PhD in economics, which I very quickly came to the conclusion was not going to happen, <laughs> that I was not uh, mathematically inclined to be getting a five-year, six-year PhD in economics. And that was my pivot and my decision to go to business school. You then set off to Harvard Business School. Prior to making that decision, did someone push you into pursuing an MBA? Were some of your peers saying, don't go to business school, you don't want to go get your PhD? I mean, what was the thinking behind that decision? So most of my cohort at the Fed at the time were applying to PhD programs. Mm -hmm. So I knew for me that was off the table. That was not what I wanted to do. That was not the direction I wanted to go in. And I had had a fantastic three years working at the Federal Reserve, doing really, really interesting economic research in the uh, mid-90s, early 90s. And business school felt like it was a chance for me to pivot, that I would go and I could kind of restart and think about a different industry and think about something different to do. 
my big, um, and I look back now and, and laugh, sort of my big challenge at the time was I applied to one business school. So I had, I had no plan B. I applied to this very, very competitive business school um, that by all means I should not have gotten into. And I, and I didn't really have a plan B. I guess I could have stayed at the Fed for a few more years and sort of figured it out, you know, what to do next. But I got lucky. I got into business school. And one of the things that was really, really important to me in the summer before I started business school was Harvard's class is very big. It's a class of 800. And I was very, very fearful, having gone to a small liberal arts college, I was very fearful that I would get lost in this big, big class. And so I, I sort of made up my mind that I had to decide what my direction was going to be. I wasn't going to stay in economics. I wasn't going to work in this kind of quasi-public-private organization. Maybe I wanted to stay in finance, but I wasn't sure about that. And I decided that summer before business school that the industry I really wanted to work in was the media industry. Yeah. And in particular, I was kind of obsessed with the television industry. And so that was my North Star. And when I got to business school, I felt a lot more comfortable knowing that, at least in my head, that was the direction that I wanted to head in. My path to get into media was a very varied one. So it, it wasn't a, I've decided this and I'm going to do this. But in my head, that's where I thought I would end up post-business school. You went to business school in the 90s and the media landscape looked very different than it does today. People can Yeah, way different. Completely yeah. differently. Yes, pre-social media. What was it about the media industry that appealed to you then? Well, it's funny. I said in a lot of my early interviews um, in business school for summer jobs and then for full-time jobs, you know, the first question you would get would be, why do you want to work for this company? Why do you want to work in this industry? And I always had the goofiest answer, but it was, all, it was to me the most authentic. I watched a lot of TV growing up. Mm. I watched a tremendous amount of television and was fascinated by the content. I didn't want to be a television producer. I wasn't interested in the creative side of the business. I was interested in the business side of the business. And I don't think that was the right answer in these job interviews at all, <laughs> but it was a super, super authentic one. I was really, really curious about the industry. And something that, that was also really important to me was if I was going to work eight hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, 14 hours a day, in a professional setting, I wanted to do something that would make me happy. And I wanted to, it to be in an industry I loved and that I was curious about. And, and that was another one of my North Stars, that it was just really, really important that I, I was going to like where I wanted to work. And I liked television and I liked media and I liked content. And so in that kind of quest to figure out how I would get into the media industry and how I would end up in the media industry, I really kind of carefully narrowed things to television and at the time broadcast television. Oh. So I was very kind of specific in my mindset. Again, it took me a while to get there, but it, it was it was not any media, all media. I was not interested in book publishing. I was a little bit interested in magazine publishing, but not really. I was really, really interested in broadcast television. And now we don't even talk about what broadcast television is, right? It's, it's sort of funny. By that, you know, at that time, it was ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox. So four main broadcast networks and a lot of cable networks. The broadcast networks had the lion's share of the audience. And I wanted to work for a broadcast network. Okay. So I am guessing you were probably one of the rare classmates who had an understanding of the, exactly the niche area you were interested in pursuing your career. So you go off to business school. It's very competitive. Mm -hmm. uh, 
did you have thoughts like, I don't know how I got here. Why am I here? Everyone else around me is so much smarter. I'm inferior. Did any of those thoughts cross your mind? So one of the things that's super, super interesting about Harvard, and and there are some elements of this at other business schools, but Harvard's a little bit the gold standard and it's continued. So if you were to walk into a um, business school class right now, you probably get a fairly similar experience to the experience I had many, many years ago, which is it's a it's an environment where you're graded highly on your participation in class. Classes are cohorts of 80 or so students, and every one of those students is a type A student. So every one of those students <laughs> has their hand up, has something to say, is... Um, at least an extrovert in class, uh, and it's a very, very competitive environment. Additionally, and I think this has actually softened a bit over the years, but when I was there, it was a, the grading was a forced curve. So where they sort of, where they wanted the class to end up um, at the end of the semester was in each of your classes, you'd have sort of 80% of the class would get um, a middle grade, there'd be 10% of the class that would get an elevated grade, the real sort of stars in the class, and 10% of the class would not have mastered the class, not really failed the class, but not have mastered the class. And the, the theory was that, you know, everybody would get a couple top grades and everybody would get a couple low grades, but most of the, for the most part, you'd sort of end up in the middle. But this forced curve notion going into business school in your first year scared the pants off everybody. And, you know, you're already in a highly competitive environment. And I wouldn't say it was a Lord of the Flies, but it was, um, it was a really, really interesting dynamic. It was a hard dynamic. But I think at the end of the day, my section, the business school is um, your first year is divided into sections. So sections of about 80 students. Everybody worked together and, you know, we worked collaboratively and we had study groups and, you know, we ended up having, everybody ended up having a great um, first year, but you didn't feel that way in that, that first semester. So yeah, we all had some kind of imposter syndrome of, you know, I'm going to be the one that fails out and how did they ever accept me? And they must've made a mistake. And I think everybody felt that way. Wow. Do you still keep in touch with a lot of your classmates? I do. I have a lot of, and it's, it's very interesting. I obviously still keep in touch with, with high school classmates and college classmates, you know, both periods um, of our lives that we, that were longer than business school. Business school is only two years, but I'd say some of my closest friends are, are my business school friends. It was a really intense two years, but uh, a two years filled with very, very like-minded people. I think we were all there for many of the same reasons. And Harvard, Harvard does a really excellent job, and I do think this continues today, of making the interaction outside the classroom as important as the interaction in the classroom. So you're really encouraged to form friendships and long-standing relationships. And so there are lots of different parts of my sort of business school friends and cohorts that have been helpful for me in many parts of my personal life, not just my professional life. Wow. Are your classmates now laughing with you? Like, oh, you're one of the few who actually ended up doing what you thought you were going to do. I mean, people's careers take so many different routes and turns and end up doing something they never assumed they would. Or people, people look at you and say, I knew she was going to do something great within this industry. Um, I'm not so sure about that. I will say, Jamie, that's, that's something that was really interesting. And, and I don't know how this has changed over time. But 
when I came out of business school, um, the economy was getting stronger. It got very, very strong. And many of my girlfriends, many of the, the women that were in my not just my section, but in my whole class. And the, the mix at HBS at the time was 70-30, so 70% men, men, 30% women. Many of the women did not stay in the workforce after they started having children, which was a little bit surprising to me. The guy was, uh, in many instances, was the, was the primary breadwinner, and they took a step back from their careers to raise their families. Um, I didn't. I sort of stayed in the workforce. But I, I kind of looked around. So one day, you, you know, you wake up and you look around at your classmates. And it was somewhat surprising to me to see many, you know, many friends and many women in my class that didn't stay in the workforce, you know, as long as I have. Oh, which we'll get to. So you graduate with this degree from Harvard. And where did you go next? So I graduated with this great degree from Harvard, and I couldn't get a job in the media industry to save my life. <laughs> so I did what someone who had worked at the Federal Reserve for three years would do. I went into finance. So I went into investment banking for a bunch of years and was lucky enough to work for an investment bank in their media and entertainment group. So I figured that was a way to learn more about the industry, make more connections, and figure out how I was going to network my way out of investment banking, which I was very, very bad at. It's so interesting that there weren't many jobs in this industry at the time. Do you think that the fact that they were not perhaps adapting to consumer needs, to their behaviors at the time, played a role in the lack of opportunities? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. I think for many, many years in entertainment, it was the creatives that ruled the roost. Hmm. And the the business people were typically people, CPAs, you know, much more of an accounting type background. Those were the business people around and, and salespeople. And that MBAs were sort of frowned on in this highly creative, very, very closed industry. And over time, you know, that's obviously changed. In 20 years, it's changed dramatically. And the rise of the internet has changed things dramatically. But yeah, there were not, there were not a lot of jobs. I had a handful of friends from business school um, head to San Francisco to start um, working on early internet things, some of which were wildly, wildly successful, and some of which were casualties of the, you know, 2000 internet bust, which was kind of interesting. And, and some of those folks kind of dusted themselves off and went back at it for a second go or a third grow, go and um, have been really, really successful. So some stuck it out. Others, you know, came back to the East Coast or, or back to more traditional jobs and then stay, had felt like they were burned once and stayed away from the internet. Do you think you're risk averse? Do you think you're someone who is more, um, someone who runs towards risk, who is more open to you know, the entrepreneurial landscape? I think for the first 10 years of my career, I was fairly risk adverse. So the riskiest part was to keep pushing to stay in the media industry and find my place in the media industry. Like that was the most amount of risk I was going to take. Once I got there and felt like I was established and felt like I belonged in that industry, I think I became much, much more entrepreneurial and more willing to take risks. And that's when I left traditional media to go to the startup world. Wow. So you're in banking. You're quoted as saying you hated it. (laughs) Did you hate the culture too? It wasn't just the work. You hated aspects of that that you felt 
were not something that interested you. I mean, a huge part of banking is not just the work, it's the networking. So I think I didn't like banking because I was not good at it. Um, so one thing that Harvard does a very bad job of is actually teaching you any like real practical skills. Mm-hmm. So I was surrounded by um, a class of uh, associates that had gone to other business schools that knew how to write macros in Excel, that knew how to financially model so much better than I could. Harvard didn't teach any of those things. You know, they sort of taught you how to ask the right questions or how to ask the person next to you to help you with the thing that you didn't understand, <laughs> right? So one of the reasons banking was really frustrating to me is I didn't know how to do a lot of the things my class, my classmates and my cohort knew how to do. Mm. And, and that was just really, that was super, super hard and frustrating to me. I also didn't understand, and I still don't understand why banking required so many hours in the office. I always thought that was a little bit silly. Wow. There's little question that a double standard exists. Do you feel like as a woman, you felt as if you had to work harder than your male peers in order to receive the same amount of credit and recognition? Absolutely, absolutely. And I resented the dress code. I thought the dress code was super, (laughs) super silly. I mean, I worked for a a boutique bank and I worked for a great group of um, men. My restrictions were less so than my friends at bulge bracket firms, at bigger firms. But I had friends at bigger firms that still had to wear, you know, tights or stockings in the summer and, you know, were discouraged from wearing pants and just ridiculous, ridiculous things. I just thought that was like the silliest (laughs) behavior. And, you know, and worked with men that would make them, you know, a little bit purposefully late for a flight and, you know, they'd have to run through an airport in high heels. Just absolutely outrageously silly things. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Do you have an example of something you wouldn't mind sharing where you felt like, ooh, I, you should not say that or that's, that makes me uncomfortable? Um, I probably have a thousand examples that I've put out of my head over the years. I think it was just, things were at a much different standard then than they are today. It's sort of almost hard to conceive the behavior. We all worked for great people and, and some not so great people, but it was a very, very male culture. Women were tolerated, but they, but I think the guys made it hard. Do you think getting through an airport in high heels was hard? (laughs) Do you think that your personality changed since entering banking? Do you feel like your personality uh, ended up molding into something that complemented your male peers' personalities? So this may sound super old school of me. I do think it toughened me up a little bit. In in the same in a similar way that business school sort of toughened me up a little bit. I think I became just a little bit more sort of hard-edged about and sharp-elbowed about how I was going to survive in the industry. The the flip of that was as my elbows sort of sharpened in some ways to protect myself against some of those male peers and male bosses, I also think I became a lot more, over the years, a lot more empathetic and thoughtful and careful about the folks that I protected, the folks that, you know, ended up as I got older and more senior working for me. So you go off to CBS News after leaving a career in banking. And you, you begin your career in the television network strategic management group. Is that correct? 
Yeah, it was like a, um, so it was the office of the chairman. So it was whatever strategy group was created from by the CEO and chair of the company at the time who happened to be a former McKinsey partner. So it was a very sort of consulting-esque, that group. Are you someone who gets intimidated by labels and accolades and titles? Or did you get there and say, I am worthy, I am capable, I can learn this? Totally. And I was so excited to actually like not be working in banking anymore and working in an <laughs> operating company, I was so happy to be there. Like I couldn't, to me, I felt like I won the lottery. I was actually getting to work in a, at a broadcast television television network. What exactly did that role entail? So the, the role, we had a fantastic um, CEO at the time, um, you know, a great mentor, a man who has since many years ago passed away. Uh, but a great leader at the company. And CBS was in a position where they had started buying a lot of assets. So they were buying cable companies. They were um, making some early internet investments. And it was super fun to be part of all those things. It, it, was, it was space that, um, that people hadn't charted before. So there was a certain amount of autonomy and flexibility. We had a, a really diverse team from different backgrounds. It was a great, great experience until it all blew up. Until it all blew up. So talk to us about that. What blew up? How did that happen? It was all blown up in a, in a bit of a boardroom coup in the late 90s <laughs> um, where the CEO stepped down and another executive you know, took his place. And that uh, new executive had no, no interest in keeping the strategy group around. And we all, for a few weeks, just sort of waited for our severance packages. You know, we assumed that this new CEO would have you know, all of us out the door. And indeed, a number of people left at the time. And I remember walking into this executive's office and sort of expected to be handed a severance package or an exit package or told that my time was up. And this man, this actually very short man, um, his grand gesture was to take all of these strategy binders, right? We had binders at the time. It wasn't, and it was, we were obviously using the internet, but stuff still got printed out. Threw all the binders on the floor from all of our strategy work and they all burst open and papers went everywhere. And he proceeded to tell me about that all of this work was useless work. Um, and so, you know, sort of sat there and um, tolerated this, like, this temper tantrum of this new CEO. And then he told me um, that I couldn't leave, uh, that he was not going to fire me or was not going to give me an exit package. And then I had, a, I had a choice of either going to the news division, which is where I ended up going, um, or a um, new internet division that was being created. And this was a man who did not believe in the internet or, or anything futuristic. Wow. So wow. I sort of knew I wasn't going to go there. At least I knew like the news business would be around for a while. So I said, thanks for the choice, and I'll go to the news division. And you know, off I went to an operating unit. At the time, you had you know, thicker skin, tougher outer shell, Someone CEO of a company, a major company, throwing a publicly traded company, yeah, a publicly traded company, throwing a binder in front of it. Were you the only person in the room? I was the only person in the room. How did you react? What was going through your mind? You know, I I think I was watching a grown man have a temper tantrum. <laughs> oh my gosh! And it's interesting if you were reactive. I'm sure, as a woman that situation would have ended differently. Yeah, probably, probably. But I something just told me that, you know, this was somebody who had to get a lot of anger and frustration off his chest and that he had to be the most important person in the room. And it just was, you know, he was going to do what he was going to do. You must have been standing there in disbelief. So you, you end up 
going to the news division. And what was that like? I mean, all these other conglomerates were beginning to uh, develop, gain some prominence, market share. What was the what was working in the news division like? I was super, super excited to be in an operating unit. So I had gone from this kind of corporate role, this strategy staff role to an operating unit, with, which had a P&L where there was work product, right? Very different work product than in a strategy unit. I was super, super excited. Of course, everyone in the news division thought I was a spy from corporate. Um, <laughs> So I got there and no one would talk to me because they thought, you know, she's going to report everything back to corporate. Um, They they obviously didn't have, they didn't know of my, my binder experience. You know, so it took a while to sort of make friends and build my network. And we did a lot of super, super interesting things with the internet uh, during that time. CBS then merged with Viacom and we got to hang out with all of our um, fun friends over at Viacom and MTV and did a bunch of collaborative work in the new space with MTV. And it was a really, it was a really sort of fun, exciting, innovative time. Um, it also was a time of a lot of news. So I was in the news division and a, a senior executive there during 9-11, during the Gulf War, during any number of presidential elections. You know, it was a, it was a great time to sort of have a front row seat at that industry. And the television industry was, and I think it's to some extent still continues to be very, very powerful. You were there and experienced what it was like for big news corporations to cover life-changing, world-changing events like 9-11. Right. So, so 9-11, we were, um, and you know, it was so many years ago. So a lot of people don't remember this. And there's certainly not a lot of people that were not even sort of born at the, at the time, but all of the broadcast networks and most of the cable networks showed news 24-7 for five days, six days after 9-11 happened. So it was just continuous news. And we all kind of slept on the couches in our office and we broadcast because nobody really knew what was happening in the world. We just broadcast continuously. Um, And there was nothing else really to watch on television than the news. That must have been a time where you probably looked at your colleagues completely differently. You were experiencing a world-changing event together in the newsroom. I was actually in the, the control room of our morning television show when the towers went down. Oh and, you know, you're in a you're in a room. It looks like you, you see it on television all the time. These control rooms, they're, you know, fairly small rooms. They have 20 odd people in them doing, um, you know, working video controls and audio controls and directing. And we all sort of sat there and looked at these monitors and kind of didn't understand why, why a plane was going into the, um, the first tower and then the second tower and watch the towers come down and in disbelief on these giant monitors in real time with two anchors in the studio above us because we were live at the time trying to relay what was happening to an audience watching. I have chills. Just crazy, get, crazy, crazy, crazy. Let's all get chills talking about it, thinking about it. Uh, and where were you? Were you in New York? We were in New York. We had a, st- a morning television studio on Fifth Avenue. And everybody, I was actually on my way. I was not in the newsroom early that morning. I was on my way to get my haircut and my beeper went off on the bus. And I got off the bus and sort of ran to the news, news studio that was 10 blocks away and you know, went directly into the control room to see what was happening. That was not just a world-changing moment for everyone around the globe. I mean, that was a a turning point for cable news. uh, And it was never the same. So you're working in news. um, And the internet is beginning to gain more prominence. Social media eventually became, you know, something that 
more and more people were beginning to use and rely on and eventually consume news, you have experienced the shift from consuming news on cable, on television, on networks to mobile, to social media. I mean, 43% of people consume their news from Facebook. So what was that transition like before you you left CBS? I mean, you were experiencing the shift in con- the consumption of news. Um, so Jamie, it was, it was really interesting. I, I realized, you know, sort of woke up one day at, at CBS and it was really the beginning of 2007. And I felt like I was having a midlife crisis that I had half my network of friends that were in sort of web dominant or or digital native companies that had nothing to do with traditional media. And then the other half of my friends, you know, like me were in traditional media and traditional media still had huge audiences and still believed that it was still the lion's share where the money was coming from, the revenue was coming from. And they had no interest in really kind of understanding, you know, this digital transformation that was happening before their eyes. And that midlife crisis led me at the end of, towards the end, the fall of 2007, to leave CBS, in part because, you know, CBS did, and all the broadcast networks or the traditional media companies did absolutely the right thing at the time, which was they wanted to preserve their revenue and their profitability for as long as they could. You know, they, they knew how to broadcast in a one-way medium, you know, one-to-many, without a feedback loop. That's what all of those folks, young or old, had experience doing. They didn't have experience with anything that was different. And obviously, this was like way before the rise of of social media. But that was sort of the moment, 2007 for me was the moment that I knew I, I belonged somewhere else. My great fear was I would, you know, die at this dying broadcast network. Mm. You take a job at a startup called yep. the Huffington Post. Yep. How did you hear about the Huffington Post? How did that opportunity come about? You know, it comes about the way a lot of opportunities come about, you know, word of mouth. Um, I had two good friends that were being courted at different points for the job, and they neither of them felt like they were right for the job, wanted to take the job, and so they kept pushing me forward. And I kept thinking, well, if they don't want the job, like, why should I take the job? <laughs> um, but, you know, they were like, well, maybe if Betsy takes the job, then we won't continue to get bugged about taking the job. And the more conversations I had with the three founders, Jonah Peretti, Ariana, and Ken Lair, the more I really believed in what they wanted to build. It was a real kind of alignment of thought. And what they needed, what HuffPost needed at the time, they needed a, they needed a grown-up to run the... 30 odd people that they had hired. They had hired this spectacular group of editors and developers and a fantastic CTO. And they just needed someone to kind of organize them and, and get them on sort of a daily routine. So I was that, that hired executive. So I left a team of almost 200 people to go run a team of 30 people at this startup where all my friends and advisors told me just be aware that nine out of 10 startups fail. It was sort of, sort of crazy, but uh, you know, your gut tells you things and my gut said it was time to do something different. Prior to that moment, you had worked in this traditional, you know, environments and career paths and here you're, you're jumping ship, entering the startup world. That must have been a whole whirlwind of, I mean, not just new opportunity, new problems, new challenges. You get to Huffington Post, HuffPost. Is the environment first off quirky? What What is the culture like when you got there? 30 people, pretty open, very different than a newsroom. 100%. Something in my head just told me, you got to leave behind everything. You got to leave behind your wardrobe. You got to leave behind all the perks that came with big media. You got to leave behind, you know, how you manage teams 
Like this is like walking on the moon. And it was. And so I left to the best of my ability, left all those things behind, actually didn't take anybody with me, any of my team with me from CBS News, knew that my goal was not to, you know, impart the learnings of this old media organization on this new organization. It was to help organize this spectacular group of very, very young professionals and help them do what they were doing even better and in a more organized fashion. How did Ariana pitch it to you? I mean, was her vision then remaining true today? I know Ken Lear also was a co-founder. Yeah, yeah. Ken. So it was Ken, Jonah, and, and Ariana. And they were, a, the three of them are very kind of eclectic mix of personalities. <laughs> very different, but, but very, very complimentary. And they had a vision for this business, Ariana was still on the West Coast at the time. So she was coming back and forth to New York, but mostly on the West Coast. Her girls were still in um, in high school on the West Coast. And, you know, we just kind of figured it out. Most of the team was on the East Coast and it all, you know, it all kind of worked. I am a big believer that, you know, you let talented people excel and you, your job as a manager um, or as the grown up in the room is to create an environment where they can excel. And that's what we did. You helped Huffington Post grow into a $450 million company. What were some of the key moments, some of your favorite moments from that experience? You were had a front row seat to its tremendous growth. I mean, that must have been really out of body, very surreal. So we had a front row seat to so many interesting things. We had a front row seat to Barack Obama be, being elected president. We had a front row seat and we were the host of probably like the hottest, coolest inauguration party in town <laughs> at the now Museum in Washington, um, which was like the most fun party I think I've ever gone to in my life. And, um, you know, and it was our party. It was the Huffington Post. You know, it just had, it had everybody on the who's who list there. Um, It was not a, you know, it was not one of the state governor's balls. It was, you know, something much more fun. It had a much younger audience, a great, great vibe to it. You know, that was quite extraordinary seeing that happen. you know, we had, Jonah and I had a ton of fun um, going to, we'd go, we had a little bit of a party trick where we'd go to various news organizations and talk to them about why we were beating them um, in SEO and search engine optimization. And so we would kind of, you know, Jonah would take out his laptop and we'd sort of show them that we had, um, we had built this whole platform called Live Stats. And live stats would show the editors, you know, what was trending and how Google would reward you if your story was to get your story to a higher rank on search results. And so we kind of show them how we do that. And all of these folks in traditional media and, you know, all my old peers um, in the CBS space, in the television space, in the newspaper space, they'd bring all the executives in, everybody would take copious notes, and then no one would be able to deliver on it, right? It was the, there were so many barriers still, very, very different environment now. But then there were so many barriers in traditional media where they desperately wanted to be successful on the internet, but their legacy and the way they were structured and the way their teams were compensated and the way they thought about things just wouldn't allow them to. So even though Jonah and I gave them this like blueprint for like for behaving better on the internet, they were not able to execute on that. So that was sort of a fun party trick that that we would, you know, we'd perform every couple of weeks. We'd say, oh, let's go over to the New York Times or let's go to NBC and sort of show them why we're beating them at their own stories. I'm backtracking a bit. You have a daughter And you mentioned earlier that a lot of your business school classmates ended up leaving their careers to work in their homes full-time. Was that a very difficult decision for you to stay in the workplace? 
Um, so for me, it was super easy. I'm the primary breadwinner in our family. My husband's an academic uh, at Columbia. He does very well, um, you know, but he's in an academic environment. Uh, and so I never felt like I had a choice. In a way, it was kind of nice. I never had to make that choice. I was the, I was the primary breadwinner and, and to live where we lived and do the things, types of things that we wanted to do as, as 30-somethings and 40-somethings, I was going to stay in the workforce. So I never had that. I never had that moment about um, stepping off the track. I've never had that moment. That made it much easier. Did you feel a lot of of pressure? Of I have I'm a CEO of a company, or I'm I am leading this department. I don't have time to go to the ballet recital or the soccer game or the after school activities. Did you ever feel guilty about some of the sacrifices I'm sure you had to make? Oh, totally, 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 absolutely. And I think anybody that would tell you differently, you know, is not being truthful to themselves. And and life is a ton of trade-offs and life's a ton of choices. I've always, always believed that your professional career is a marathon, not a sprint. And life is long, if you're lucky, uh, and that I would get those opportunities later. Um, I might miss some opportunities early, but I get them back later. And I made a real effort to get those opportunities back later. And it all worked, you know, it's all, it's all worked out, but it was by no means perfect. By no means perfect and always messy. And it helped to have an enormously supportive spouse. So, so I never felt like we had a, I had a, I have a very supportive spouse. We had for many, many years, a very, very supportive babysitter who was a really a third parent to my daughter and it all kind of worked out. Um, and I do think, you know, in both in your personal life and your professional life, you model the behavior you want to see, right? You model that behavior you want to see in your family around you in your colleagues around you and the people that, that work for you. And for me, it was really, really important for my daughter to see that her mom worked and worked hard and worked a lot, but also had time for her. And I, you know, and I hope as she gets, she's 15 now, as she gets older and someday enters the, enters the workforce, that will be influential in how she makes decisions. Oh, thank you for sharing that. So you had this amazing um, experience from what it sounds like at the Huffington Post. You end up leaving and you took a job as the CEO of The Blaze, which is, to say it frankly, completely different than the Huffington Post. Huffington Post, uh, for those of you who don't know, has very liberal leanings. They produce a lot of content that is geared towards a more liberal demographic, and The Blaze is not, uh, you know, appealing, pandering to a completely different audience. I mean, you worked with so many different personalities. Ariana Huffington is very different than Glenn Beck. <laughs> Um, so what, what prompted you to end up leaving the Huffington Post? You were there for two years, uh, and, and moving to the blaze first off. So I think most importantly for me, the choice to go to HuffPost in 2007 and the choice to join the blaze, um, in 2010, neither were political. And the real draw of both opportunities were those two personalities. The Ariana draw was very, very similar to the Glenn draw, meaning um, very, very charismatic leaders, highly creative, phenomenal marketers, had very clear, distinct, gated audiences, which was important because I believe community is super, super important in the news space and was very much the consumer and the community was very much 
overlooked um, at big media organizations like CBS. So the reason, one of the reasons HuffPost worked is we had a very defined community, a center-left community that we loved and catered to and helped and fostered. And then they brought their friends and that's how that business got bigger and bigger. And the same was true um, of the blaze on the conservative side. So for me, it was never about, it was never ever about politics. What was so interesting was that I do think you learn as you go from experience to experience. It's super great if you can kind of take those experiences and and learn and leverage them. So I'd had this fantastic experience in the digital native space at HuffPost. And then I had this fantastic experience before that in the video space at CBS. And what was really appealing and interesting to me about Glenn, not just that he was such a charismatic leader and it was an opportunity to learn about an entirely different audience, an audience that living on the Upper West Side of New York City, I really didn't understand or appreciate nearly as much as you know I, I, I could have. The, op- the other opportunity with Glenn that was so unique was he wanted to do something super meaningful in video. And so I thought, well, you know, at HuffPost, we never did video. We didn't have the, um, we didn't have the venture backing to do video at scale. So we sort of stayed away from the video um, side of things. That was very, very smart. It would have bankrupt the company if we had gone heavy into video. HuffPost then went into video after they were acquired by AOL. It did not have a, they spent a lot of money. It did not have a, a meaningful impact on the business. So I think that was absolutely the right decision. But Glenn wanted to do something in the video space coming off of his experience at, at Fox News and wanted to do something in the over-the-top kind of direct-to-consumer um, video space. And that was really interesting because I kind of missed being in the video space from CBS. So joining Glenn was a chance to get to know a different audience, to get to know an audience that I was not familiar with and that was not familiar with me and didn't necessarily want to see me as a senior executive leading that type of company, right? So there's all those interesting challenges there. It was a chance to work with a highly charismatic personality, a, a person that um, you know I care deeply for, as I do for, for Ariana, just a ultimately a very, very good human being. And it was a chance to do things in the video space that hadn't been done before, you know, for this um, specific audience. You brought up a very fascinating point. You're a resident on the Upper West Side. You really didn't have a lot of exposure to the kind of audience the Blaze was trying to cater to. That was a major issue in 2016 when a lot of news publications did not understand nor cover Middle of America to the extent in which they cover audiences like liberal-leaning New York City and Washington, D.C., you, from the sound of it, knew very early on that there was a demographic that was not being heard nor reached. You were sounding the alarm bell saying you're not covering other viewpoints, other pain points, other issues that have traditionally disproportionately affected those living outside major cities. Were you surprised by the 2016 election, and the actions of many of these publications. So what was fascinating to me is you had, and it was really the reason that the team of people, um, Glenn, Glenn's business partner, Chris Balf, who I went to work for, really believed in the power of the blaze, was that there was nothing up against Fox News. So Fox News was, and certainly continues to be, this huge, huge juggernaut in the conservative news space. And yet there were no outlets that were vying for the attention of that audience, right? A, A lot the way that, a lot similar to the way the Huffington Post vied for the audience of the New York Times, 
Times or the audience of CBS or, or the audience of um, mainstream and left-leaning media. It sort of wasn't true on the conservative side of the spectrum. So right there, it felt like there was a lot of opportunity. There was a lot of kind of unused space that was really interesting. Now, one thing that, that Glenn did spectacularly well is he connected to his audience and he'd say, as we built this television network, he'd say every day, you know, this is the audience that you, this is the network you are building. This is the network you are building. So he listened very, very carefully to that audience, spent a lot of time with that audience. And through all the time we spent with the audience, it was very clear to us that 2016 would be a different election. I, I wouldn't say that, you know, all of us were convinced that Trump would be elected, but I, but I do think you could ask anybody that worked at the company in 2015 and, and, you know, when there were a whole bunch of candidates on the Republican side, many, many, many candidates, including Governor Bush and, and Senator Ted Cruz um, and Senator Rand Paul, that I think if you had polled all of us at the time and said, do you think Trump will be the nominee in the summer and fall of 16? I think a lot of us would have said yes. Like they, we had just seen that from talking to our audience. Now, again, I don't think all, I don't think that same group would have predicted that Trump would win the election. But I, but I think we saw a level of frustration with the establishment. Primaries started sort of in the summer of 15 going through to the convention in the summer of 16. It was kind of clear to us that there was going to be a different candidate that was going to be run on the Republican side. Wow. Was it difficult for you to put your political ideologies, your beliefs aside and and focus on the business and the growth? I mean, you worked for a completely polarizing, like polar opposite publications. (laughs) So I I think, Jamie, I think what what was most challenging for me was you know, we have this phenomenal audience in the heartland. And the hardest thing for me was that I didn't do, I didn't do the same things from a leisure perspective that these folks did, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I lived and, and many of us in the company commuted back and forth. The company had operations in New York and the company had operations in Dallas. So we go back and forth from New York to Dallas on a pretty regular basis. In some cases, you know, folks were going back and forth weekly. But you know, I lived in an apartment. I didn't live in a house. Um, I don't. I don't own a firearm. I. I was not. I didn't grow up um, hunting. You know, all these sort of little things that you know wasn't specific to me as a woman, but because girls were, you know, girls were hunting and shooting guns as much as boys were. That just made me a little bit. My my life experience just was a little bit different. Um, than many of that, much of that audience. But I think I always looked for sort of points of commonality. I mean, Glenn's audience has always been a highly spiritual audience. That was something that was super, super interesting. It was a very, it's always been very much a community-based audience that, you know, was very, very kind to, you know, kind to their neighbors and kind to their families. That was very interesting and something we all embraced. So we all kind of looked for, you know, what are those points of commonality? But certainly, you know, when I would show up in Dallas in my like, in my sort of skinny jeans and blazer, you know, I didn't. I, I didn't necessarily look the part of a um, of a leader in this organization. But you know, but that's one of the most interesting parts about about Glenn, and I would say this about Ariana too: is they're both highly curious individuals, and they had friends. Um, they have friends and confidants from all different parts of the ideological spectrum and all different parts of the the universe. And it was fun to bring all those different people together to have interesting conversations. 
Always. You end up leaving and... Um, leaving before the election. Yeah, I left in the summer of 15. Wow. Oh my gosh. So um, where did you go next? So after that, I had to do a little bit of penance on the Upper West Side of New York City. Um, you know, those folks, those folks were not too happy with me uh, and the, the business that I was working in and helping to grow uh, for, you know, four plus years. I also felt like I needed a break, right? I needed a little bit of a respite. So I went back to um, a little bit where I came from. I went back to an investment bank and hung out for three years. I was an executive in residence at a fantastic media and entertainment boutique bank um, in New York City called Lion Tree, a phenomenal collection of um, bankers led by um, an executive and founder, Arya Borkoff, and hung out with them. And for me, Jamie, the most important part was getting to see the macro again. I had been in the weeds of running these companies, and I got to see, you know, sort of what was going on in the macro of media and entertainment and what had changed for the last decade as I had been running these other companies. You brought up a great point, trying to work your way back into these liberal social circles, I'm sure, while you were growing this other company that they probably didn't always agree with. That must have been challenging. So you end up, you founded mag, co-founded Magnet Companies. First off, what is Magnet Companies? So I have two business partners um, that profile very much like me and that they've worked in established media and digital native media and been successful at both. One of my partners has worked with the Kardashian sisters and worked at the NFL. Another wow. partner has worked, uh, <laughs> ran TMZ and ran Awesomeness TV. Um, so they, they, we, we together collectively have this like weird eclectic portfolio of experiences in our media and entertainment careers. Um, and the three of us got together and partnered with a private equity firm in New York. And we've been investing in and incubating companies, consumer companies that are focused on community content and commerce. And we're a couple years in. Um, we have some certain themes and theses about where, all the, where the world is going. It's changed a little in the pandemic and in COVID, but uh, it's been an interesting run so far. And I couldn't ask for two better business partners. What's an example of something you've noticed? So, you know, one of the things that, um, that we're looking at is how consumer behavior has changed, right? So I'll give you an example in the beauty space. As we all collectively are wearing masks um, exclusively, <laughs> in public and probably will for a while, um, my guess is that lipstick sales are probably not at their peak right now, right? Women are really kind of struggling, right? Like, oh, I've got lipstick all over my mask. You know, I'm used to wearing lipstick, but I'm not, I might wear it on a Zoom call, but I'm not wearing it to the grocery store. I'm not wearing it kind of out and about, you know, as long as I have to have some sort of facial covering. Um, so how does that sort of transform beauty and how will that transform you know, women and their appearances and how they think about beauty in a shutdown, you know, we've all sort of struggled with, we can't get our hair cut, we can't get our nails done, how we've struggled with that and how we'll come out of that in a new era, you know, this new normal of what types of things we'll go back to, what routines and regimes we'll go back to and what we will leave behind. Wow, I, that is fascinating. Um, you also- Super fun. Super fun. You sit on a few boards, including the Skims board. Mm -hmm. You have had a front row seat working with these really creative minds. I mean, what is it like working, for example, on or sitting on the board of the Skim? You work with Carly and Danielle. So I love Carly and Danielle. I talked to them yesterday um, and talked to them very, very frequently. I'm the um, only independent 
board member. Um, so all the, the rest of the board is comprised of, um, of their investors, representation from their investors. And they're fantastic. And, you know, their, their profile and what they built, I met them six months into the skim. So they were just getting started. They were literally like still on the couch. Um, just about to take their first office space and they wanted to be disruptive in the news and information business. And I had a total, total appreciation of what they wanted to do, what they wanted to build. They wanted to build something on their own terms. They were very clear about the voice that was missing in the space, you know, just like all those kind of open spaces I talked to, I talked about when we started with Glenn, they saw a bunch of open spaces and they've been doing an awesome, awesome job. And they are just the most fun and the two sweetest co-founders. They're fabulous. Wow. Okay. So I have a lightning round of questions that I want to ask you. Uh, who is your role model? So I don't think I have one role model. Um, I've had many mentors, male and female over the years. I will tell you the only person that I've ever, I've met a lot of famous fancy people. The only person that I've really gotten butterflies in my stomach meeting, I got really nervous meeting and it was many years ago was Oprah. Oh, wow. What was it like meeting her in person? Um, she's a, oh my God, she's a total like larger than life figure. And we've all like grown up with her, right? So you just, you know, kind of can't believe you're in front of this person that you've seen a gazillion times um, on television. I had one thing I wanted to tell Oprah, which was years and years and years ago, um, she ran a marathon. She ran the um, Washington, D.C. marathon. Um, the Marine Corps Marathon many, many, many years ago. And she, she was the one that inspired me in business school to run a marathon. And I've run a bunch of marathons since, but like Oprah inspired me. And people forget that. I mean, it was so many years ago. But yeah, Oprah ran a marathon. Wow. Uh, what's a shameless plug you have? So I have a shameless plug, plug for a part of the industry that I love and actually a part of um, the media industry that we have at Magnet recently invested in, and that's podcasting. So we invested in a great podcasting company called Dear Media, and they oversee about 40 different podcasts, great, great, interesting podcasts, and that business is growing. I have a whole bunch of favorite podcasts that I can't live without. Um, during the pandemic, I have been obsessed with the BBC's coronavirus newscast. They put out every day. I think it's better than the daily. Um, I think the BBC's coverage has been fantastic during the pandemic. And if you're looking for a quick eight episode series to watch on podcasting, you cannot miss the rise and fall of HQ Trivia. Ah, so um, boom and bust, the rise and fall of HQ Trivia. I think it's the ringer that's doing it. It's really great. Uh, what is your most embarrassing college story that comes to mind that you want to share? Oh gosh. Um, that's a tough one. You know, I lived my sophomore year in college. I lived on a, a small man-made, I lived, my dorm was near a small man-made pond on campus and I lost a bet. And the two, I was a sophomore, the two senior guys that lived across the hall from us, um, threw me in the pond. <laughs> um, what is your favorite book? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I have to say I've been reading a lot of fiction, um, and nonfiction in the pandemic. The most interesting book I've read most recently is how to be an anti-racist. Really good book. Really great book. Really good book. What are you most proud of? Um, I think I'm most proud of my family. I have a great husband, 
a fantastic 15-year-old daughter that I love desperately. I'm mad about her. I'm most proud of my family. And we always wrap it up by asking this question. If you can leave our listeners with one lasting piece of advice, what would that be? Um, so two pieces of advice, and I said both of them earlier, but they bear repeating. One is it's a marathon, not a sprint. Careers are long and successful careers are made as long careers. So don't distress over what's happening tomorrow because you everyone has a long, long runway in front of them. And then the last piece of advice is because the world is a marathon, not a sprint, and because we will all have long, productive careers, do what you love. Do what you love. If you have an industry or a sector or something that you're passionate about, pursue it wholeheartedly. Do not get stuck in doing something for the money or because someone told you you should be there or because you think it's the right thing to do or for peer pressure, any of those things. Find something that you love and are passionate about and make that your North Star. Wow, that is amazing advice. Well, Thank you so much, Betsy, for taking the time to speak with me. And I'm excited to see what you continue to accomplish. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks so much for listening to an episode of Redefining Ambition. If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe, rate us, tell your friends. And if there's anyone you think we should have on our show, let me know. Join me next Tuesday for a brand new episode of Redefining Ambition. We'll see you all then. Take care, everyone.